I'm Bruce Steffes. I'm a general surgeon. I'm the uh, head of the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. I'm an ATLS instructor. So those are my credentials for today's uh, lecture. Um, much of the first part of this lecture I stole unabashedly from Tom Sanderson, who's running around. I had to put that in because I knew he was going to be at this conference, so I didn't want to, okay? Um, no conflicts of interest. Our basic objectives here are to figure out how to uh, do good triage. I think if any of you spend any reasonable amount of time in the developing world, there's going to be some situation in which all of a sudden uh, you find more accident victims on your front door than you would like to ever imagine. Uh, some friends over here uh, managed to put themselves 4.5 miles from the epicenter of the uh, Haiti uh, earthquake, and they found themselves with way more than they wanted. And so uh, this is something that's very, very uh, practical as we go. Uh, one thing, if you'll, there's going to be groups, small groups, so kind of stay together as a group, if you would, okay, for five or six people, all right? Uh, all right. Um, the definition of triage, by its very nature, means that you don't have enough resources. And that goes for virtually every resource you can think of. You don't have enough people, you don't have enough supplies, you don't have enough team, you don't have enough time, you don't have enough OR, you don't have enough anything. And so the most important thing from our standpoint, honestly, from a survival standpoint, is to figure out how to make hard decisions and then how to live with those decisions at 3 o'clock in the morning when you're sitting there wondering, did you do the right thing? And so that's really the goal that we're going to have this morning is try to do that. Uh, it's really very important to make sure that your clinic or your uh, hospital where you're going to be working has some sort of protocol in place and that you have some vague idea um, how it works. And um, perhaps equally important, who's in charge uh, in this situation? Because what will happen is you'll have uh, five solid opinions amongst the four of you and it really becomes very chaotic and things don't work well. You have to prioritize your, your patients on a series of things, and these will change. The, the, the thing about triage is, is that whatever you have today or this very moment, ten minutes from now it will change. And so you have to know what decisions you made and why you made them, and it might keep shifting. You're going to look at the severity of illness and injury. Here in the United States, our highest priority is always the very sickest gets the most attention. But that may mean that ten others die in an environment where there's only two or three of you. So that may not be the right decision for you. Uh, prognosis comes into this. Uh, again, here in the United States, we'll throw all the resources in the world at somebody, but it may not be the logical thing to do in a, in a resource-poor area. And obviously, one of the biggest factors is who do you have on campus at that particular moment? Uh, if you have three general surgical trauma specialists, that's a way different than uh, two nurses, uh, and that's it. And so you're going to prioritize as we go. Uh, one of the things that's going to be important uh, and a difficult problem throughout this is the whole problem of uh, keeping some sort of medical records, trying to make some sort of um, record so that at least the next person has some idea what's been ordered on this patient and what you think is going on. Clearly, you don't have time for a whole medical records. You certainly don't have time to fill out your electronic medical record, uh, and it's going to be uh, an issue for you. Um, your, your goal, then, is to accomplish the most good for the most people, not necessarily for the sickest. And we don't like that. Uh, one of the things that's uh, been done pretty much standard throughout the uh, world is the idea of colored tags. Um, the uh, various colors imply uh, some degree of the, the severity and or prognosis. Um, red tag is pretty much... Um, 
consistent throughout many of the systems. You're going to put the diagnosis and the injury on this, and this is just a quick one. This is not a 15-minute history and physical, uh, wondering about how their mother felt about high school and all these other things. Uh, this is just a quick and dirty uh, diagnosis and your injury. These red-tagged uh, people are going to be your first priority, uh, obviously the most urgent in care. And uh, by definition, these are people who in there's life-threatening shock and hypoxia, uh, but the patient can be stabilized and, if given immediate care, probably survive. However, one of the things that comes into this whole decision is how much immediate care do they need? If it's going to take every one of your people, you may not put them in this category. Now, what is important, of course, is you can't use these red tag and blue tag and yellow tag and green tag and black tag uh, theories unless you actually have them prepared ahead of time. So that's one of the things that's really important to know where they are and do you have them. Yellow is the second priority. These are urgent patients. Kind of our definition here is, yes, they have a serious problem, but they can wait 45 minutes to an hour to be treated. Okay, so that would that's kind of your criteria here. Uh, they've got a serious problem. They're not in serious trouble right at this very moment. They will be if they're left alone. Uh, they need to be looked at. Uh, green is come back another day. Uh, you can put a splint on them. You can do something with them. Uh, put them in the ward and look at them, quite frankly, at your convenience. And so uh, even with broken legs and fractures, obviously those things can be splinted. Uh, you check for the obvious things about vascularity and, and those kinds of things. But uh, they're not going to deteriorate, and if they do, it's going to be a long time from now. Okay? And, of course, then the, the black label. Uh, black means either they're dead or they're going to be. And so this is somebody who exceeds your ability to take care of them. And now that may mean that they are not dead right now but it just means that there's no logical, rational way to put enough resources into this person in times of time, personnel, people. Too many other people will get hurt, uh, die, be lost because you took care of this person. That's uncomfortable. That makes us all uncomfortable. We don't like to do that, but it's, it's important. As I mentioned earlier, one of the most important things about triage is that it keeps changing. The number of people show up as the nurses hear about it, as the OR help hear about it and show up, as other physicians show up, uh, as people you don't want show up uh, to show up, show up. Uh, those are all issues that will change kind of what you do as well. So, you know, a, a second, um, I'm losing all my wires here, a second um, taxi full of Hurt people show up, but that changes your priorities. Again, new doctors, new personnel. Uh, you lose power. That will change what you can do. You lose operating room capabilities. changes what you can do. So you've got to have somebody who continues uh, to be in charge. So what I want to talk about today and what we're going to practice is a little thing of how to triage these patients and do it in a rational way um, that gives you something that makes some sense and something which at 3 in the morning you can at least say, I did my best uh, thought process and I followed that. Um, we're basically going to go on the basic uh, principle of any of the advanced trauma life support uh, issues, the ABCDE. Uh, as you are following in, please, six and eight people to a table because we're going to have these small groups in a minute. It will save a lot of confusion in a second. So if you can join some of the other groups, I'd appreciate it. 
the reason when you're doing, when you're taught ACLS or PALS or ATLS, the ABCDE, is because it's based on this same priority time-wise. Who's going to die first? The person with an airway. Who's going to die second? The person with a major breathing problem. Who's going to die third? The person with a major circulation problem. So the reason we prioritize our care that way uh, is because it makes sense. And we can use the same kinds of principles in prioritizing patients who are coming in in advanced trauma in these multi-casualty areas. One of the other problems that we get into that you really need to give some thought to at your hospitals or your clinics is this whole matter of communication. Uh, modern communication often disappears. The cell tower might be out. Uh, your local phone system goes out. The power goes out. Uh, whatever the reasons are, um, you have to have a plan and a backup plan to handle this. And, of course, the other issue, as I've already mentioned, is you can't even rely on paper uh, because it's going to be hard to keep that paper with somebody. That's why the tags on the toes and that sort of thing end up being the best way to handle this. Uh, in terms of approaching these patients in terms of x-rays and labs, as little as possible, do only the life-threatening life issues, the life-saving x-rays, the life-saving uh, radiology. What you don't want to do is to have somebody worrying about spending their time worrying on an amylase when they should be doing a typing cross on another patient. So minimize it. Uh, as you're well aware, hematocrits uh, in immediate trauma don't do a whole lot of good. So unless they're clinically severely anemic, don't bother with that. Uh, don't order an x-ray for everything they've got. Uh, do it for their chest x-ray if you need to. Uh, but don't do it for a lot of other things. Minimize it. Basically what we should be doing is a hemoglobin and hematocrit at best, a type and cross almost always, and a UA dipstick and the rest of it you can fake it. Who's going to be transported? Again, this is the part of the lecture that uh, basically is going to be uh, a nod towards uh, modern uh, Western medicine. Uh, and the principle here is you want to get rid of those patients who you can't take care of, who are going to exceed your institutional capabilities. Now, if you're working in an emergency room here in the United States, uh, if it's a neurosurgical problem and if you haven't got a neurosurgeon, that's obvious. Uh, if they've got a severe burn and you don't take burn, care of burns in your hospital, think about this. As a general rule, within 10 minutes, you should have made a decision whether that patient should be at your hospital or not. So here in the United States, that's an early decision. Uh, you start getting it all in gear. You make sure that you have the proper communications with the other hospitals. Uh, those patients that uh, exceed your capabilities, that have multiple injuries, uh, those with comorbidities. Obviously, a badly injured little child is best at a children's hospital than at your little hospital. Uh, a uh, really older person uh, with lots of comorbidities, again, depends on the institution that you have and your capabilities. So when you transfer, you have to know what your hospital has at that particular moment. Uh, you have to be prepared to take care of the and anticipate any needs that these patients have. And um, most importantly, you want to make sure you don't do any further harm and then start transferring, transporting the patients. Here in the United States is a big deal. Don't waste time doing CT scans and doing all sorts of studies that don't make any difference. They're going to be transferred. Get them transferred. Get them out of your emergency room. Now, uh, you know, all of us, we might have these really fancy ambulances that you see in the right upper quadrant, uh, but in many of the hospitals where we work overseas, you might have the ambulance down in the bottom right. Uh, that will obviously make a difference. Uh, here in uh, trauma in the United States, we talk about the golden hour. 
in a lot of our trauma patients overseas, we talk about the tarnish three days. It takes a while for them to get there. And so many of the patients have actually sorted themselves out. They died at the scene. Uh, again, here in the United States and everywhere, it's a good idea, if at all possible, to have direct communication between this, the ranking medical professional and the person who uh, is going to receive uh, this patient. Uh, as a matter of fact, of course, it's a law in the United States, and you can get seriously handicapped and seriously fined uh, by transferring patients without communicating. But it's good advice uh, everywhere. The problem, of course, again, is in many of our developing world settings, you can't uh, find these people to communicate, so you do the best you can. Um, when do you transfer them? You do take care of the life-threatening injuries. You don't take care of the rest of the injuries. So if it's a disabling injury, a fracture or something, you stabilize them. Uh, after the uh, transfer is arranged, you don't do unnecessary tests, and you get them out as soon as you can. When you transfer, make sure that you've sent adequate information, whatever that you have. And that's a list here that are fairly evident. Uh, who is the patient? Uh, what are the dates and times that things happened? And when are you transferring them? The ample, which is the um, allergies, medications, past medical history, uh, last uh, meal, and uh, events that occurred uh, are the, uh, is the history there, a brief history, uh, what you did, what you uh, feel need to be done, and transfer them as well. One of the things that's always important to remember that when you're transferring a patient, that those tubes that you did put in can fall out. So you have to make sure that the people who are transferring them are capable of handling things. Uh, it may mean that you secure them more uh, successfully. Uh, if you're sending a patient with a chest tube bottle and that breaks on the way, what are you going to do? Are you going to uh, do they have some way to put a Heimlich valve on or just use a Penrose drain to tie over it to make a, a poor man's Heimlich valve? Um, help them figure out what they're going to do. Uh, send the blood with them. Send the fluids with them. Uh, in other words, help them anticipate anything that will go wrong in that uh, ambulance. Uh, do not forget to send the x-rays and all that sort of stuff. It just slows things down. And do not prefer uh, not send the paperwork. So, in summary, what we're going to try to do is, first of all, do no harm. Uh, know the capabilities of your staff in your hospital uh, for any of these. Know when you should and can transfer. If you're out in the middle of nowhere and a transfer takes three days, then there is no transfer. And that will make a difference in what you do in terms of your priorities and how you uh, categorize these patients. Uh, if, if at all possible, have a direct doctor-to-doctor -doctor communication, but it should be someone taking responsibility on both ends to make sure this transfer works well, stabilize them so they're not going to die in the ambulance, but then make sure that you've got everything that you need to do for that patient in case something goes wrong in the ambulance uh, using the best uh, personnel you can to transfer them. Now, how does the developing world setting uh, affect these? Uh, we can manage to do no harm. We can usually figure out what our capabilities are. We usually have no good idea what the capabilities of the other hospital are. We can't get a hold of them. They don't have anybody to uh, transfer them in a meaningful kind of way. Uh, and so it's a lot more complicated when you get into that situation. What we're going to talk about uh, right now, we're going to do some exercises. We've got about um, another 35 minutes here. I've got three set of cases, and I'm going to go through the first one with everybody, and then I'm going to ask you to take just a few minutes to go through these cases and amongst yourself decide what your priorities are. 
It's interesting. Please, I would prefer that there's no fisticuffs or blood, okay? It can get that kind of vicious about, uh, you know, who needs to go first and whether you care as much as I care and all these other things. So we're going to try to avoid that. Uh, let's go through this first case. Uh, our, our premise behind this, you are the only caregiver in a 100-bed hospital. It's in the country of Malatania. It's on the continent of Afro-Asia. And uh, you only have one nurse and one aide to help you, okay? So don't come up with a scenario that all six of us are going to do this at one time or another. That's not going to work. Um, and you have to understand that the more time you spend with one patient, the more likely another patient might be hurt or die. And so you can't say, well, I'm going to do this complete physical examination and then make my decision. That isn't going to work. So here's our first scenario. This is a motor vehicle accident, a single vehicle. It's a matatu or a taxi or a tap-tap or whatever it is in your country. And, uh, of course, it was supposed to have eight, and it had 42 in it. And it smacked into a tree at 100 kilometers uh, an hour. Okay, And here are the five that showed up on your doorstep. The first one is a 45-year-old driver with severe respiratory distress with maxillofacial trauma, a broken arm, chest abrasions, blood pressure 150 over 80, heart rate 120, respiratory rate 40, and a Glasgow coma score of 8, which for those of you that are not familiar with that means they're technically in coma. Okay. Now, again, think airway, breathing, circulation, disability for our priorities. Second one, 38-year-old female who was ejected from the vehicle, traveled nine meters through the air before she landed. She is alert but complains of abdominal and chest pain. She has an unstable pelvis, blood pressure 110, respiratory rate 25, and heart rate 140. Third one is a 48-year-old male who was found under the vehicle. Uh, I always am fascinated how that happens, but he's under the vehicle. He has no breath sounds on the left side. He has a tender abdomen, multiple abrasions. His blood pressure is 90 over 50, heart rate 140, respiratory rate 35, Glasgow coma score of 10, which means that he has a moderate head injury. Uh, 25-year-old female who's hysterical. She has eight, she's eight months pregnant. She has abrasions to her face and anterior abdomen. She's in active labor. Blood pressure 120 over 80, heart rate 100, and respiratory rate 25. And the other is a six... The other is a six-year-old who was alert and talking, but now responds to painful stimulus by crying out. His right lower extremity is fractured. There's dried blood around his nose and mouth. His blood pressure is 110 over 70, heart rate 180, and respiratory rate 35. Okay, there's three of you. Good luck. So, who would you prioritize as the highest patient and why? Or the highest patients and why? Can I have your attention, please? All right. We're going to get, let you go into some of these uh, little more uh, vibrant discussions on the next two cases. But on this one, let's just kind of start before we go too far down the wrong pathway. If we use A, B, C, D, E as our priority uh, decision tree, which one of these has an airway problem? A does. Anybody else? No. Anybody else? What you don't know is E. Okay, he may or may not have an airway problem because he's obviously got blood around his mouth and his nose. Okay, so he's got evidence of maxillofacial. So certainly 
uh, A is the highest priority, and you have to kind of make a decision, honestly, about E based on a couple of things that we'll mention in just a second. Who's got the breathing problem? C. Pneumothorax, apparently, or a massive hemothorax, but something going around with that uh, left chest. Uh, who, um, what's a B have? Pelvic fracture, so that fits under the C category, circulation. There's some sort of bleeding disorder, bleeding problem. So she's a little lower priority. Um, what does a D fit under? Check her later. She's going to deliver whether you do anything or not, okay? So answer she's actually the lowest. Uh, it, now, people get all hysterical about that, but the answer is there's not a thing you can do about it. Uh, get some uh, village midwife to come in and uh, be with her, and that's the best you can do on that one. Uh, e, what's going on there? Okay, there's potentially shock. What is this classic history, though, of a person who has got obvious head trauma, face trauma, who was alert and is now comatose. What is it? It's an epidural hematoma in all probability. This is a decision that uh, obviously depends on who you've got at your hospital. If you haven't got a neurosurgeon and you can't transfer them, then this is an E. This is one you stick in the back room. Because if you took care of all the rest of the problems and you want to, using popular mechanics, do your first craniotomy, okay, that might be a possibility for you, but he is certainly the lowest priority in this in this patient outside of the pregnant gal. Okay, and we have trouble with that because we don't want to see six-year-olds die. You know, that's a real struggle for us. But at least in the middle of the night, you've got a rational way to go through this and justify what you did. Now, were you always right? Only God knows, but you can only do the best that you can do. So let's go to the second problem here. Um, this is what the American College would have said. I think it was exactly what uh, the E they would put in as third priority, but again, they're not in our settings. And that was, if we don't have a neurosurgeon, he may well move to the bottom of the list. Uh, B, an active labor. Good. Okay, now this is a gas explosion at the, at the uh, local factory. Uh, you and your two assistants happen to be walking by. Okay, so uh, you're doing your scenario, uh, and you have these five workers who are going to help you. So you don't have much at this scenario. So please, uh, now the only thing that is not in this history is, of course, that one of them is the son of the lawyer, another is a hemophiliac, and the other is Jehovah's Witness. But other than that, go ahead. Okay. find out patient E is the son of the lawyer. Good, good. Okay. All right, can we uh, get a little discussion going on this one? Uh, one caveat, you can't make patient E automatically a black tag. That's not fair, okay? <laughs> the other issue is that in some cultures, patient C and patient E would be the highest priority, okay? Why? 
You're nodding your head. Why? Because of who they are. Because of who they are. Okay. And in a in the culture, you may fall back on your American argument that uh, this is not you know good scientific care and so forth, and you will be really bitten uh, with destroyed relationships and all those other things. Uh, all I'm saying about that is I don't know that I always know what the right answer is. I still probably uh, have to defend what I believe before God for my actions. Uh, but you will pay a significant price uh, because you have not treated the big men as big men. Okay, but. Let's go back to our North uh, American approach to this. Um, who has the highest priority? B? C. D? Which? Who has the known air? Now, again, in this situation, there's not enough of you. Go by what you know, not by what you suspect. Okay? So if you go by know, uh, what you know, who has the known airway problem? B has a known airway problem. Does A have an airway problem? No. no. Anybody that can articulate has no A problem. If he can scream, he has no B problem of significance either. Okay? Uh, he may have a serious D problem, but that's another whole issue. Uh, so, by knowing by what we know, then B would be your highest priority. Who would be next? Let's, let's just ask, what's, what's A's problem? He has a fractured leg, probably, okay? Now, it is possible that he has some sort of head injury, and he's confused, and that's why he's being obnoxious, but we do know that he probably has a serious leg problem. Uh, B, we've already identified. C, what is that patient's problem? Certainly a circulation problem. Uh, he is, however, doesn't really say whether he's talking or not talking. Now, obviously, when you walked in and you looked at him and he waves at you, that's a world of difference between he's laying there, not moving in a pile of blood, but we don't know that. What's D's problem? We don't know. Dad would fit that category pretty well, but he may just be a head trauma patient, or he might be in shock, or he might be in answers we really don't know, but we don't know. So until such point that we can know, we have to treat him as a pretty low priority. Okay? Uh, and E, what is his problem? Yeah, entitlement syndrome, that's right, okay. All right. And if it, does, it isn't lethal now, it may well be someday, okay. So, uh, so in priorities here, again, a, a B would be your highest priority. Let's see what the American College would say on this. Um, B, with an airway problem, they liked D, which I personally don't agree with, okay. Uh, but since they're not looking over my shoulder, I'm trying to do what I think is right at 3, and I can think about it at 3 in the morning. Uh, and they said you basically couldn't tell. Now, again, this is a, if you had somebody, just a bystander, who you could tell him, go over and shake him, see if he's alive, moving, that would change his priorities, okay? Uh, C clearly is a circulation problem. Uh, a, he looks to have normal anything but a broken leg. And E, um, he could be hypoxic. He could have some other things, but he's pretty low priority right now. All right, so here's our third uh, scenario. Uh, you have an ex a propane tank that explodes and there's a fire in the house. All of these are members of the same family. Burns are a common problem. So 
understanding how to triage burns is important. By the way, these notes are have been posted. If you want to download them, they're, they're up on the thing. <laughs> Assuming their website's working. It seems to be giving me fits, but um, eventually, someday, at least they'll be up there without a doubt. Uh, you got the three of you in a small 100-bed hospital. Now, remember, does anybody remember the rule of nines? The rule of nines, 18% top, front, front and back, 18% front and back, each extremity 18, nine for the arms, nine for the head, okay? So that gives you a degree, a sense of how severe this burn is when they talk about these, these areas. Okay. <clears throat> Who has the airway problem? A and who else was saying C? Okay. Now A, 45-year-old man, he's coughing up uh, soot-stained sputum, so clearly he's uh, been inhaling some stuff. Uh, he has burns on his face, head, and hands. So he has burns locally. The thing that's important in a burn is to realize that in, in less than 30 minutes, you'll not be able to intubate him. So this is a very, very high priority. With his face, head, and hands, uh, face and head, that's about a 9% burn. And his hands, the, the surface area is about uh, 1%. So 1, 2, 3. So he's about a 12 or 13% burn. He has a very reasonable chance of survival. But if you had a burn unit, would you transfer this patient? Yeah, there's two very strong reasons to do that. One is face burns and inhalation. Second is hand burns and for rehab. So the best plastic surgery you can get for this guy for future cosmetic and functional purposes and because he's going to... Uh, respiratory burns are one of the primary factors for mortality, uh, one of the independent uh, factors for mortality. So this is a relatively high risk. This is a guy you'd like to get out eventually, but certainly highest priority in terms of an airway. C is an interesting issue. He is coughing, wheezing, coughing up a soot. His uh, voice is hoarse, which means he's already had some damage to his vocal cords, so he's clearly going to die very shortly. Uh, if it's something's not done, uh, he's responding to pain only, which suggests there might be some head injury. It may be shock. You don't really know where you are with that particular patient. But he has burns of his abdomen, his chest, and his legs. Both legs uh, would be 9 plus 9. The front half would be 18. So he's at 27, 30% to burn. And he's got respiratory burns on top of that. In the developing world, the mortality is roughly your age plus your percentage burns. This guy has a 120% mortality. Okay? And so this is a patient that you would probably not put an airway tube in, but you would give him a, a black tag. Bob Cropsey said he learned a very important lesson. Bob was a missionary in Togo, and he had a couple of these situations. He put people over in the back room, and his idea of caring was to give his best possible care to the people to whom he could really help. 
But again, socially, he got really bitten by that because they were very upset that these people were put off in a room without care. Okay, that that was felt to be uncaring, inconsiderate, all that sort of stuff. So from our mentality, we were maximally utilizing our resources from the society's viewpoint. We were being uncaring. And that really hurt the Christian testimony there for a while. And so keep that in mind. I, he said he thought, honestly, if we'd have just taken a nurse's aide and stuck him in there with a blood pressure cuff, that would have been sufficient. Now, the other thing that's very, very important, this guy, unfortunately, is, uh, yeah, he said he's not responding to pain only, so he's obtunded. But the most important thing is we have to understand that even if we can't offer temporal healing, we can offer spiritual healing. And so we've got to talk to these people about the Lord. Okay, their, their pain is going to be momentary. You load this guy up with morphine, uh, but you talk to him about Christ uh, before you do that. Okay? Um, patient B, she has pains on her, uh, burns on her back and buttocks, 18%. Posterior legs, another 9%. 27% burn. She's not in shock. She's just crying. What does this patient need? Burn care. Okay, and transfer because she's young, uh, but uh, if you could. Uh, we have a 19-year-old female who's obtunded, pain with movement of her right uh, humerus and right leg. Presumably it's the same thigh that's swollen. Swollen. She is not in shock. She is tachycardic. Okay? Or she is not hypotensive. She may be in shock. But she is tachycardic. Uh, what are her priorities here? Airway. Why airway? Because she's comatose. She's a Glasgow coma score of something less than eight. Okay? And so you have to, here the airway is for protection. And then you have to figure out, because she probably has head injury, because they don't have a good explanation. She clearly has a fracture. She's got a circulation problem. So, But she needs an airway for, to protect her airway. And E, a 45-year-old male, um, pain in his pelvis with an obvious fraction of his pelvis with abdominal distension, blisters on his chest, abdomen, and walls. I don't know what that means. I just saw that. You gotta hate it when your walls are burned. Okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, and a laceration of his forehead. So this is a guy who clearly is C and has a significant burn and fits in that category. I have one last little scenario. We're not going to really come up with answers to this, but I'd, you really need to think about this because the real question is how are we going to set up? Here's what they said, by the way. Uh, C, the old man, would have been the highest priority. Okay, because he's the sickest. But again, in our settings in the developing world, that may not be true. Uh, A fits in there. D, ortho, maybe chest, maybe head, decreased loss of consciousness. Um, e and birth. So they, they agreed with the rest of it. So what happens is, okay, you go there. You, you're doing your little two-week uh, short term. And you get there and you say, oh, I, I had a lecture. And it said, I should know what your disaster plan is. And when you ask that question, they looked at you. Okay. And said, obviously, since you're the most qualified and the deepestly involved in this, please help us come up with a disaster plan. So what I would like each of the groups to do is to start, just grab a piece of paper and start listing everything you need to consider to do a good disaster plan for your hospital. I'm sorry to cut this short. This is really an hour's exercise. Uh, but I'd like to just kind of mention, what are some of the things that your, your group came up with as high priority? Personnel. How do we get them to the hospital? 
Okay, a, a distinct line of chain of command and who's taking over when that doesn't work, etc. Who else? Resources. Resources. What are your resources and can you get them to where you need them? What else? Communication, communication system. Now, communication system both within and without. So actually setting up a media handling group. Uh, setting up what do you do with the media showing up? What do you do from a security standpoint? What do you do with family members? What do you do with in a culture where the entire village is supposed to show up? What, what do you do with all those people? What other things? What are, yes, ma'am. Sorry? I, I'm not catching the last word. First word. Assessment training. Yeah, just training people what to do in this scenario. Excellent. I'm hearing a voice, but I don't know where it's coming from. I'm sorry. Okay, practice drills. Excellent. So that you can run this through. You may think you have it, but the first time you run that drill, it looks like a real mess. Okay. What else? Okay. Where where additional support is, how to get them in. One of the issues is how do you get your hospital ready? Who's going to discharge the patients that you don't need there anymore? You know, how are you going to handle that? Yes. Somebody had their hand up over here. Yeah. Okay. Okay, some basic life support and good, some good sense. Make this a community training issue. I have a wonderful, I couldn't find it. I have this wonderful picture of a guy in an accident and uh, four well-meaning bystanders are carrying this guy to the hospital, one hold, holding each leg and his head's down like this, you know. So I'm thinking, I hope he doesn't have a C-spine injury. All right. So uh, what else? Spiritual care, not only acutely, but counseling and spiritual care afterwards. That outreach uh, is, a, is a same thing, not only for your staff, but for the community. Yes? Know what kinds of disasters are likely in your area. Okay, know the kinds of disasters that are likely so that you can prepare more rationally and more logically. What else? Okay, what are your referral patterns and who can you trigger, you know, to to next hospital over who would be willing to help you? Yeah, if you set up a trauma box or some resources, then you should periodically have someone check them to make sure they're still there. Okay, uh, and make sure the supplies haven't walked. I know that's not a problem in any hospital we've ever worked at, okay? <laughs> One thing I know mentioned are morgue facilities. Where are you going to put the dead folks? Okay, and how's that going to be handled in security, etc.? So there are a lot of other questions. It's just a short list, but the point is it's not easy. It's a lot of work, and there is no one-size-fits-all kind of thing. You have to talk with your people, what works, what works in that culture, how should we do these things, what resources, because, frankly, your nurses know some of the outside resources much better than you're going to know them, uh, so use them. Let's take a quick word of prayer and we'll close. Almighty God, we thank you so very much that you are indeed the God who is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. In all that we do and say, as we prepare to serve you, may your name be glorified. We ask these things in your name. Amen.